Well, good morning. Grace and peace to you. All right. Get all set up here. Okay. Real quick before we get started, two quick asides. First, it's Family Worship Sunday. And I have two little boys. I know this can be stressful. So it's okay. Just take a deep breath. This is, your children are members of this church. This is their sanctuary. I'm not going to be bothered by noise. No one else will. You know, we all have kids. And if we don't have kids, we're used to kids. So it's going to be okay. Second, just real quick before we get into it, I think most of you know who I am by now. But just in case you slip in after announcements, typically, uh, my name's Sam. I, you know, usually refer to myself as the intern, but my term, as Kent said, is the, my, I guess my technical title is pastoral resident. And so what that means is I'm a seminary student. I'm in the process of becoming a pastor in our denomination. And while I'm in that process, I'm doing a residency here to get experience, to get some training, and to kind of get a feel for things before I go into full-time ministry. So um, a couple years ago when I was looking into starting this process, I reached out to our our former head pastor here, Rick, and I had known Rick and, you know, I just wanted to pick his brain about some things and, and get his opinion on seminary and whatnot. And as we talked, it became really clear that we had a lot of shared vision around ministry and church planning and, and how the gospel should, should function in the world. And so, you know, Rick invited me to come work with him, to be his resident while I did my schooling. Now, if you're really observant, you might've noticed that Rick is gone and I'm still here. I have a couple of years left in school and the elders have been so gracious to say, hey, you know what, hang out, finish your residency. Um, and so that's what I'm gonna do. You know, Lord willing, we'll be here for the next couple of years. Uh, we're excited about the opportunity to serve with you, to love you, and just to get to know you. If we haven't you know, gotten the chance to get to know you yet, come talk to me, I'd love to. I'll get together for coffee or beer, drink pretty much anything but Diet Coke. So, all right, that out of the way, we're gonna to get, to get to our sermon today. Our passage should be a familiar one because we're gonna stay in Philippians. We're just gonna jump back to chapter one. We're gonna cover verses one through eight. And I know Brian's already been over this ground, but as good Presbyterians, we believe you can preach a few sermons from the same passage. So before we get into the text though, I wanna do a little bit of background work. I'm, I'm a context guy. And I think if we learn a little, about, little bit about who the Philippian church is and who's there, it's gonna bring a lot to our reading of this passage today. So before we read the text, just a little bit of, of background info. If you're not into this stuff, just bear with me for a second. Okay, Philippi is a city in what would have been Greece, but now it's a Roman colony. And it's an important Roman colony because it lay at the crossroads of two major trade routes, right? Kind of like Stanton at the corner of 64 and 81. And this was important. The Romans realized that they had to control this city in order to control the trade route, which is about 10 miles from the coast. And so they could control shipping in the region. So what do you do? How do you take a backwater colony and turn it into a, a strong Roman fortress? So they had a plan. The Senate comes up with this plan. They're going to convince Romans to move to this Greek city of Philippi, and they're gonna convince them to live there and make it a strong Roman city by a couple different, me different methods. First, they're gonna basically make Philippi a mini Rome. They're gonna style it after Rome. It's gonna look like Rome. It is gonna feel as Roman as possible. And then they have a second part of this plan. How are they gonna convince Romans to move there? Well, they do two things. They, they come to two groups of people. They come to the Roman elite, the nobles, the wealthy ruling class, and they say, hey, listen, if you'll move to Philippi, if you'll build a home there, we'll make a sweet deal for you. You're gonna get tax breaks, free land, free houses. Just, you know, go live in Philippi because we need it to be Roman. And then they come to a second group. They come to Roman soldiers, veterans, and they say, 
hey, you know what? You've served in the army. If by some miracle you've survived as a Roman soldier for 20, 30 years and you're retired now, if you will move to Philippi, then we will give you the same thing. Homes, property, land, uh, money, titles. And so you have these two large groups of Romans, a ruling class and a, a soldier class, moving to the city of Philippi and Romanizing the city. And so Philippi is this, you gotta imagine, it's like a wild melting pot of culture. You've got like Martha's Vineyard meets Black Rifle Coffee. And then underneath that, you have all of the Greeks who live there, the merchants and the slave class. And so it's just a really neat city. And it's this city, these people that Paul comes to and he preaches the gospel and plants a church. And so we see this in Acts 16. Paul comes to the city of Philippi. He does what he normally does when he preaches. He looks for the Jews to preach to. And there's not a lot of Jews in this city. It's a Roman city. It's a Greek city. And so there's no synagogue. So Paul does what he always does when there's no synagogue. For whatever reason, Jews would go worship by the river when there's no synagogue. So Paul goes outside the city looking for the Jews and he begins to preach the gospel. And what we see happen is that the gospel lands with power in the city of Philippi. So Paul is preaching and he starts to convert not just Jews, he starts to convert Gentiles. We're told particularly in Acts 16 about a woman named Lydia and she is part of the ruling class. She's a wealthy merchant and Paul preaches the gospel and Lydia is converted and she says, you know what? I'm gonna throw everything in. I'm gonna support this mission. I'm gonna use my money and resources to support your ministry. So Lydia is the first convert we hear about in Acts. And then a short time later, the gospel keeps moving forward. We hear about how Paul is being harassed by this demon possessed girl, some slave girl. And through her possession, she's able to tell fortunes and her owners make money off of her. And she's harassing Paul and mocking him and mocking God. And Paul, you know, he's about the business of the kingdom, doesn't hesitate. He just casts the demon out of her, right? Game over. Her owners aren't super happy about this. This is their source of income. And so Paul gets thrown in prison. And so a moment later, you know, a little bit later in the story, Paul is in prison, but he doesn't stay there. He's praising, singing, still not phased. And God sends an earthquake and swings, opens the doors of the prison. Paul doesn't run away. Paul stays there and the jailer is so moved by this, right? Because he expects the prisoners to run away, thinks he's gonna have to kill himself to avoid torture and punishment, but he doesn't. Paul stays and the prisoners stay and the jailer is converted. He's, we're told his whole household is converted to the kingdom of God. And so what we see happening is that the gospel comes in power to the city of Philippi. We see Gentiles being converted. We see people being freed from the powers of demonic forces and the slavery of sin. And so this is the church that is planted there. This is the church that Paul knows and loves in Philippi. And they don't just stay a young church. Paul hangs out with them for a while, but he's got to keep moving. He's going to keep planting churches. And so the Philippians are all about it. They are a strong, healthy church. They support Paul in his ministry, right? They're financially blessed. They've got that Roman ruling class. And so they're always sending Paul money. They're sending him support. They're about the gospel moving forward throughout the world, not just in the city of Philippi. And so this church loves Paul, right? And Paul loves them. In fact, we get a lot of clues from scripture that this is probably Paul's favorite church, right? You're not supposed to have favorites, but if he did, it was this one, right? This is a good, healthy church. And so from the time Paul plants this church to the time this letter is written, we're looking at roughly maybe 10 years. In that time, Paul has been in communication with them. He has trained their elders and deacons. He has come back and visited them. And so now the church at Philippi, this strong church, hears. They hear that Paul is in prison. They get word that he is in jail and that it's not looking good. 
So what do they do, right? This is a church that is about business. They are about action. They do not sit around. So the Philippians get together, they get, a, they get some money together, and they pick a guy to go to Paul in prison, a guy named Epaphrodites. Well, a couple things here. There is no Western Union in the ancient Near East, right? No Venmo. And so if you're going to send money to somebody, it's a bag of gold, right? A bag of coins, silver. And so you don't pick one of your linen merchants to do that. You pick a guy who knows how to handle himself. And so Epaphroditus is probably one of these Roman veterans that we, that we hear about in the text. And, and this is a dangerous journey, but they know, the church of Philippi knows something that's true. If, in Roman prisons, if your family and friends didn't support you, the Romans would just essentially let you rot and starve. The Philippians know this. One of their founding members was a jailer, right? And so they are on mission. They're on task to go help Paul out. So they send Epaphrodites. It's a dangerous journey. We're told later in this book that he almost dies. He gets sick. And so Epaphrodites gets to Paul. He delivers the gift, the money. He has to hang out for a little while while he recovers from death. And then Paul says, hey man, like, thanks for coming. I know you're here to support me, but actually I'm gonna go ahead and send you back. You know, if the Philippians are worried about you, you're sick. And also I've already written this letter. I need you to deliver this to them to tell them what I have to say. And so that brings us up to speed with our passage today. So as we enter into this text, I want you to think about what is it that Paul is trying to say to the Philippians in the midst of this changing time, in the midst of his suffering, what questions might he be trying to answer that the Philippians are having? And so that brings us to our text. If you will stand for the reading of God's word. All right, Philippians 1, verses 1 through 8. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers, elders, and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense of the, gospel, of the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all affection of Jesus Christ. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Pray with me real quick. God of grace, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. You would help us to hear what it is that you have to say to us. Um, that the words of Paul to the Philippians will be useful as your words to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Okay, so what is it that Paul is trying to get across to the Philippian church? What is it that he's trying to say to them? Well, you can imagine the Philippians probably had a few questions, right? What's going on? You're in prison. Last time you were in prison, Jesus just burst the door open. What's, what's happening? Why are you stuck? How are we gonna move forward? And so Naturally, the next question that comes from that in this time of uncertainty and of this time of change is how? That brings us to our first point. How? How is God going to do the work of his kingdom when you're not with us anymore? How? How is the work going to continue? How is the gospel going to move forward? Who's going to train us? Who's going to love us and shepherd us? It's a fair question, right? And we know what this is like. All of us do in this room, right? 
we're a lot of different people in here, but we know what this is like. Think of a couple of examples. If you're here today, right, some of us are from the valley, but a lot of us are transplants. We're not from here. And so that means, logically, at some point, you had to leave behind a home. You might have had to leave behind a church or a college ministry, a small group or a mentor or Christian relationships that were super important to you, right? They were how God worked in your life. You felt God moving in your life through these people, these places, these circumstances. You felt God building his kingdom. You felt the spirit changing you and making you more into the image of Jesus. But because of the natural ebb and flow of life, you had to let those things go. You had to say goodbye. And that's, that's hard, right? So you know what it's like to, to, for change to happen, to wonder how God's gonna work. And maybe that's not you. Maybe you've been hurt by a church. It's real quiet. Maybe you've been hurt by this church, right? Even the best churches are led and served by broken people who need the grace of Jesus. And so sometimes things are said or done that shouldn't be, or sometimes things that should have been said and done aren't. And so that hurts. And there's a lot of different reasons we can be hurt in a church, even by good people. And so maybe we're in a church or in a circumstance where God was at work. Again, we felt him moving. We felt him growing us and changing us. And then something happened and we got hurt. And now we're left wondering, maybe we're still healing. Maybe we're left wondering, man, can God ever work again? You feel disenchanted. You feel a little, a little jaded. Can God still work when his people have hurt me? Maybe that's not you. But if you're part of this church or really any church, you're used to change. It is the natural flow of God's kingdom, right? You may not like it, but it's how things work. And so you've probably had to say goodbye to people, right? whether it's a pastor or a leader or a mentor or friends or people in your small group, people that God was using to build his kingdom to work in your heart and now they're gone. And so the question becomes the same questions the Philippians had. How is God going to do the work of his kingdom despite the changing circumstances, despite suffering, despite loss, despite hurt? How can we be sure that the kingdom will still move forward? And we see Paul's answer to this in verse six. He says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Who's the he? Who is the he Paul is referring to? It's not him. He is referring to Jesus. And so what Paul is saying to the Philippian church and what we need to hear is that from start to finish, the work of the gospel is the work of Jesus Christ. Right? Paul is saying, when I came to you, when I preached the gospel, when you were converted, that was Jesus. When I cast demons out, when you were freed from the power of sin, when you were free from the power of demonic possession, that was Jesus, right? And the same is true of us. No matter, don't confuse, right? We can't confuse the circumstances, the settings, the things that God uses with the how. And so in the midst of change, in the midst of new things, we can be confident that the gospel is still going to move forward because it was never the people, it was never the places, it was always Jesus. It has always, from start to finish, been Jesus building his kingdom, right? That's hard to soak in though, isn't it? We become very attached to these good things, these good gifts that God has given us these instruments and tools that he's used to bless us. But what Paul is saying is, hey, I love you guys and I know you love me. And listen, I'm, I'm not sure I'm gonna make it out of this one, but it's going to be okay because Jesus will bring to completion the work he has started. 
And so this gives us a new confidence. This gives us a new security because we can be sure that this is the work of Christ, that the work of the church, the work of the gospel in our lives and in, and in all the world is the work of Jesus. And so regardless of what changes, we have confidence, we have security that that work will be brought to completion. And it's from that security that we're given the freedom to do the work of the kingdom because we know the how is not gonna change. Jesus is not going to change, that he loves us more than we do. That he loves our church and our marriages and our children more than we do. And so from that security, we're able to do and be about the work of the kingdom. And that brings us to our second point, the who. Okay, right? Like good Sunday school answer, the how, Jesus, obviously, right? But who, practically who? Who is gonna do the work of the kingdom? Who is going to do the ministry? Paul's gone, who's gonna do it? And so Paul's resounding answer to who is you. You are going to do the kingdom work. You are going to build God's kingdom. You are going to spread the gospel. You are going to do the work in the ministry of the saints. And we see this in a couple of places in this passage. We see it at the start, uh, very beginning of the chapter where he says, to all the saints, that's you all, the congregation who are at Philippi with the elders and the deacons, right? So Paul's like, hey, listen, You got elders, you got deacons. I've already trained some guys. God has ordained them to serve you and to oversee you. Trust them. And you've got skin in the game. Every single one of you is a part of this. We see this down here, especially, we see it in verse five, but especially in verse seven. Paul is saying, he's like, hey, I know Jesus is gonna bring this work to completion. Do you know why I'm confident? Because you are already my partners in the gospel. You already are about this work. This is a good church, right? And Paul's saying, hey, hey, this is okay. You're my partners in the gospel from day one until now. You are my partners and God is going to use you to do the work that he started. So what does that mean for us, right? What does that mean for us to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to do the work of the kingdom? It doesn't mean you all have to get up here and do this, right? You're not all called to that. Some of you might be, and you should probably be asking Jesus if that's the case, right? Some of you are called to the ministry of the gospel. That's a very real thing. Maybe you're called to teach. Maybe you're called to, you know, be an elder someday. There are lots of things in the ministry that God might be calling you to. But I want, what I want you to take away from this is that everyone is called to something, right? No one is called to everything, but everyone is called to something. Let's say it again. No one is called to everything, but everyone is called to something. And so what that means is, if you have been saved by Jesus Christ, if you've been brought out of the kingdom of darkness and into his family, he has work for you to do. This is not an if, right? This is a definite thing we see in scripture. Bear with me, let me flip back like two pages, okay? I'm gonna read to you Ephesians 2, verses one through 10. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once walked and lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated, and he has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, 
so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one can boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right, what am I on about? Big picture, right? Big, big picture of redemptive history. God makes the world. Everything's good, right? We know the story. Sin comes in and breaks everything. Every, everything is tainted by the stain of sin. All the good that God made is broken. But God, in his good mercy, his great love for us, doesn't leave it that way. He begins the process of calling out a people to himself, of revealing himself to us, his laws and, his, and the way his kingdom functions. And all of that is brought to a head through the ministry, life, and death of Christ Jesus, right? Jesus comes. He is the son of God, but he is God. And he comes to the world and he lives the perfect life and he dies for our sins and he is resurrected so that we are restored to God, right? We're brought out of the kingdom of darkness. We're brought out of our isolation. We're brought out of the power of sin and death into the kingdom of God. But what Paul says really clearly here is you're not saved so you can sit in these oh-so-comfortable chairs and look pretty, right? You do, but that's not why. You're saved for good works. And let me like pause here for a second and be really, really clear. Not saved by good works. This is what Paul's talking about. You're saved for good works, okay? So what does that mean? You're not going to make Jesus happy with you if you start doing stuff, okay? Jesus is already happy with you, okay? Believe it or not. If you are in Christ, if you have placed your faith in Christ, he has done all the work necessary to make you right with God. And you are loved by the Father. You are cherished. And so the good works is the result of that. As we read in Matthew today, it's the fruit of our union with Christ. And so if we are in Christ, if we have been made one with him, we're seated in the heavenly places with him right now. God has work for you to do. And that is a gift. It's not a requirement to make him happy with you. It's a gift. Why? Because God's kingdom shows us how all of creation is supposed to function. Right? We're in a broken world where things are marred. But God's kingdom is the start of his kingdom on earth. Right? The church is the start of his kingdom on earth. And it is showing us how creation is supposed to function. How we're supposed to live in restored relationship with God and with each other. And so that means there's work to do. And God, in his graciousness, he hasn't just saved you, right? He hasn't just like, you're just barely getting in and he's like, okay, you know, I'll let it slide. He is honoring you and saying, you're gonna be part of the work of my kingdom. You're gonna be part of making all things new, of rolling back the power of sin and darkness. And so you need to understand if you're a Christian, God has work for you to do. What is it? I don't know. You gotta figure that out. You know, Part of the job of the elders and, and pastors and is to equip you for that work. It's to instruct you and it's to get you ready for it. But you need to do some work to figure out what it is God has called you to. That's everyone here is called. But when Jesus saved you, he saved you with all of your background, all your baggage and your idiosyncrasies and everything. He is sovereignly going to use that to do the work of his kingdom. You don't need to be somebody else. God is going to work through you. He's gonna use your broken hands to build his kingdom, which is outrageous, but that's how good his grace is. And so as we sit here today, you have to think about that. How has God called you? Some of you have been called to serve in this church. Maybe you're called to be part of the children's ministry. I need another teacher for Holy Cross Kids A. Come talk to me after the service. 
I'll get you a background check. We'll have you wiping boogies and slinging goldfish in no time. Maybe you're not called to that, right? Everyone's called to something. No one's called to everything. Maybe you're called to be a parent. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're called to be married. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're called to foster. Maybe you're not. I don't know. Somebody is. Some of you here today probably are. What is God doing? What is he calling to you? How does he want to use your work to build his kingdom? And there's a couple things, a couple caveats we have to throw in here, right? Because as soon as I start talking about doing work, doing ministry, we get some, we get some reservations. Because as soon as we start talking about what we have to do, we already forget point one, the how, right? So I think, okay, I gotta do this, that. The how is Jesus. We're told in 2 Corinthians, we've each been given a deposit of the Holy Spirit to equip us to do the work for the common good. And so that means you are called to work. You are called to be about the business of the kingdom, but it is Jesus doing it through you, through the power of his Holy Spirit, which he's given you, right? And we need greater faith in that power. This is the power that raised Jesus from the dead, the power that lives in us. And he is the how. And so despite your goofiness, it's gonna be okay, right? So we come with usually two reservations here. It depends on, you know, which side of the coin you land. Some of you here are hesitant to do the work God has called you to because you're scared and you don't think you're good enough or ever could be, right? You know your own failures, you know your own struggles with sin, and you're like, ain't no way. Ain't no way God's gonna use me to build his kingdom. That's one side. And then maybe you're on the other side. And, you know, you might think a little too much of yourself. You might think, you know what, if I mess up, if I don't do this just perfectly, say the exact right words, everything's gonna fall apart, right? You know which side you land on, right? If you're type A or an IMDB, whatever, I don't do the Enneagram into real science, but uh, just kidding. You know, which, you know where you land, right? You know who you are. But both of these things, right? Both sides of this coin stem from the same issue. A lack of faith in Christ's power and sovereignty to complete his work. And so as we approach the work of the kingdom, as we start to be about what God has called us to, we need greater faith in the work and the power of Christ. That's where the struggle lies. We don't believe the how is powerful enough. And so I'm gonna tell you, like, as you come to this work, if you're hesitant, it's okay. I get it, right? You know how ridiculous it is that I stand up here, that anybody stands up here and preaches, right? It's, it's silly, to be honest. Preaching is silly. God uses people to bring his word to you. That's, it's the power of Christ. I get it. It's scary, though, to be about that work. And so as you're struggling with that, take it to Jesus. Tell him, hey, man, I, I, I don't know how you talk to Jesus. This is hard. I need greater faith in you to do this through me. And I can guarantee he's going to do it. He'll grow your faith. Step forward. Game isn't one from the parking lot. You know, as I was thinking about this, I was brought to, brought to mind an example in my own life. I th thought about this Sunday school teacher I had as a kid. And probably when I was about 11 or 12, this guy took me under his wing. And a lot of who I am as a man is because of his willingness to take his time to invest in me. Uh, you know, he taught me how to fish and to hunt. He taught me how to drive a car. He taught me how to be a good outdoorsman and to care for the environment. But most importantly, he taught me my need for Jesus. And so I want to be clear, this guy was not a professional Christian. He was not a theologian. He had spent his younger years as a logger, right, and a trapper. That's how he made his living, like a real mountain man. He got like to the ripe old age of 40 and his back and knees were shot, so he got into real estate. 
He was on his second marriage. He'd come to know Jesus later in his life. He was not perfect. But I remember what he would say to me. And this is, this is key. He would say to me, don't look to me. Don't, you know, put your hope in me because I'm gonna let you down. But look to Jesus. Jesus will not fail. He'll complete the work he started. And so as you're thinking about this, and maybe you're hesitant, we don't need perfect people or professionals to do the work of this church or any church. We need people who can point others to the grace they found in Jesus. All right, so last point. How come, this is more of a feeler question, right? Emotional people love this. I don't know what your Enneagram is. I've already said it. Feeler question, less, less thinker, more feeler. How come? That just means why. But if you're from Western North Carolina, you don't say why, you say how come. How come? Why is it gonna be like this? Why do things have to change? Why does Paul have to leave? Okay, he's gonna send Timothy, but I don't want Timothy, I want Paul. The 25-year-old mama's boy, give me Paul. You know, like, and we can, you know, at first you're like, okay. But we can all be this person. We can all be in this place, right? Why? Why do things always have to change? Why is that how God's kingdom works? I think there's a couple of things we're seeing happen here. And a couple of things that Paul is probably speaking to. Remember who he's talking to, this church in Philippi. This is a church full of successful people, Roman veterans, upper ruling class. These are people who know how to get work done to achieve the award that they want, right? They know what success looks like. They know what glory looks like, right? This, these are Romans. And so Paul is saying, hey, listen, I get it. You know, when I came to Philippi and I planted this church, it was powerful. It was successful, right? The, the gates of the prison burst open. Demons are getting cast out. But you need to understand something. Success in the kingdom of God does not always look like worldly success. When God's kingdom moves forward, it's often through the suffering of his people. It's not always through what looks like power and what looks like excitement and change and big, big things happening. Sometimes God moves through suffering. This is an upside down kingdom. Why is that? It's because God doesn't have the same goals in mind that we do. He is looking at an eternal perspective. And in his graciousness and his wisdom, he's gonna do things that seem off to us, but that he's using for his ultimate purposes. We gotta go back to point one. Trust Christ Jesus to finish the work he started, even if it doesn't always make sense. And then there's a second thing I think is going on here in this passage. There's a th second thing I think Paul is trying to drive home for the Philippians. You see, there's something that happens in churches that is dangerous. It lends itself to stifling God's work. And we have to be careful of it. It starts as a good thing, but turns into an idol. See, what happens in a church is we get a foretaste of our future rest in heaven, right? So what do I mean by that? Someday, we're, we're all gonna die. Spoiler, sorry, there's kids in here. Spoiler, I have that talk at lunch. We're all gonna die. And if we are part of God's kingdom, we're going to spend eternity with our Savior, with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Spirit's work will be perfected in us. We will not have disease or decay. We're not gonna be you know, trees, as Jerry was saying, diseased trees anymore. We will be made new. And as we say every week, we're gonna have peace with God and peace with one another. We have that now, but it is going to be fully recognized in our eternal rest. And so now, as the kingdom of God breaks out on earth, as it's moving forward, we get a foretaste of that, that future rest, that time when we won't struggle with sin, when we won't have to say goodbye anymore, when things won't change anymore, right? That's what we have here. 
That's what worship on Sunday is. That's what's hopefully happening in your small group, right? You're getting a foretaste of restored relationship, of what it looks like to live in God's kingdom. And so what happens? Well, we like it. It's pretty good, right? And the rest of the world around us doesn't have that. And we, we love what we're getting here. We love what it's like to live in God's kingdom and, and to be loved and to be known and, and to be supported. And so we can turn that into an idol. And we can take a good thing and we can turn it into a dangerous thing. We can cling to these good gifts God has given us and be resistant to how his kingdom is moving forward because we're scared that if things change, God will stop working, right? This happens all the time, all over the world. Churches freeze where they're at and then never do anything else because they're afraid that if things change, if people's, people change, that God will stop working. Again, gotta go right back to the how. Point one, Jesus is gonna finish his work. And so what does that mean for us? It means we've not entered our rest yet. We're still wandering in the desert waiting to come to the promised land. Yes, we're hidden in Christ Jesus right now in heaven, but here we're in this now but not yet. We are not there yet. And so God's kingdom is still on the move. The battle is still being fought, right? Jesus is one, but we're still waging war down here. And so just naturally changes a part of that. People come and go, right? God is moving and he's working and we have to be okay with that. And so what I want you to take away from that is right now, be careful. Don't seek your eternal rest now. It ain't time yet. Someday, but not now. In the words of the great theologians from the band Kansas, carry on my wayward son. There'll be rest when you're done. What does that mean practically for us though? Real quick. We're a church, this, this is true of the church globally, but we're a church right now who's been through a lot of change. I get it, right? If you're part of the old guard here, you're probably worn out. Even if you're not, maybe you came from another church. You're, you might be worn out, right? You've been through the process of, of planning for a building and looking for a, a, a property. You've, you've been through the COVID years, right? No matter what church you're at, that was rough. Been through the COVID years, and now we're looking at more change, right? We're looking for a new lead pastor. We're in six to eight months, it's gonna be a different looking church in some ways, different location, hopefully a new lead pastor here, God willing. And so as you prepare your hearts for that change, I want you to think about, am I looking for my eternal rest now? Or am I willing to be open-handed with the gifts of God's kingdom, trusting that he will finish the work he has started despite all of the changing circumstances? That's hard. I'm not saying it's not hard, it is. It's hard for all of us but trust that Jesus is gonna finish the work he started, right? There's gonna be a lot of work that comes along with this, right? New building, new location. We're gonna need new people to serve in different ministries. We're gonna need new small group leaders. We're gonna need new small groups. Oh. All right. Somebody had to say it, right? Maybe God's gonna call your small group to multiply. That's the word we use, multiply. To serve the needs of his growing kingdom. And that's going to be okay. When those things happen, and sometimes it'll be hard, right? Sometimes it's gonna, gonna pull at us. We can be okay. We can be confident that Jesus will finish what he's doing. Why is it hard? Because it's not easy to do those things, right? It's not easy to build deep relationships. It's not easy to become intimate with other believers and to trust them enough to share your stuff, right? But again, don't confuse the people or the places with the how. As these, thing cha these things change, Jesus will finish the work he has started. So as we wrap up this morning, you know, we've answered a few questions here. And I think there's really only one question that remains. And that's how will you respond? As 
God works. Will you trust that he is the how? That he will bring to completion the work that he has started? Will you grow in faith in the power of Jesus Christ to do what he set out to do? As you're growing in faith, will that faith propel you to be about the work that God has called you to? Will you get into things? Will you become involved? Not that you're gonna be perfect, but that God will empower you to do the work of his kingdom. And then as we carry on through this life, as things change, as we suffer, as people come and go, will you be open-handed with the gifts of God's kingdom? Trusting that regardless of change, he will do what he set out to do. He finished the work, he will finish the work that he started. So how will you respond? Just like Paul loved Philippi, I love you guys. And, and I know you, some of you. I think you'll respond well. Will you pray with me? God of grace, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've called us to be about the work of your kingdom, that you have given us everything that we need through the power of Christ Jesus, who will finish the work despite our shortcomings. And as we enter into a new season as a church and as your people, we pray that you would give us the grace and the faith to trust you to build your kingdom in the midst of change. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.